Episode 12 of The Flaming Jewel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Flaming Jewel by Robert W. Chambers. Episode 12 Her Highness Intervenes. 1. Toward noon the wind changed, and about one o'clock it began to snow. Eve, exhausted, lay on the sofa in her bedroom. Her stepfather lay on a table in the dance hall below, covered by a sheet from his own bed, and beside him sat Trooper Stormont, waiting. It was snowing heavily when Mr. Lycan, the little undertaker from Ghost Lake, arrived with several assistants, a casket, and what he called swell trimmings. Long ago Mike Clinch had selected his own mortuary site and had driven a section of iron pipe into the ground on a ferny knoll overlooking Star Pond. In explanation, he grimly remarked to Eve that after death he preferred to be planted where he could see that old Herod's ghost didn't trespass. Here, two of Mr. Lycan's able assistants dug a grave while the digging was still good. For if Mike Clinch was to lie underground that season, there might be need of haste. No weather prophet ever having successfully forecast Adirondack weather. Eve, exhausted by shock and a sleepless night, was spared the more harrowing details of the coroner's visit and the subsequent jaunty activities of Mr. Lycan and his efficient assistants. She had managed to dress herself in a black woolen gown, intending to watch by Mike, but Stormont's blunt authority prevailed, and she laid down for an hour's rest. The hour lengthened into many hours. The girl slept heavily on her sofa under blankets laid over her by Stormont. All that dark, snowy day she slept, mercifully unconscious of the proceedings below. In its own mysterious way, the news penetrated the wilderness, and out of the desolation of forest and swamp and mountain drifted the people who somehow existed there. A few shy, half-wild young girls, a dozen silent, lank men, two or three of Clinch's own people, who stood silently about in the falling snow and lent a hand whenever requested. One long-shanked youth cut hemlock to line the grave. Others erected a little fence of silver birch around it, making the enclosure a plot. A gaunt old woman from God knows where aided Mr. Lycan at intervals. A pretty, sulky-eyed girl with her sloven, red-headed sister cooked for anybody who desired nourishment. When Mike was ready to hold the inevitable reception, everybody filed into the dance hall. Mr. Lycan was master of ceremonies. Trooper Stormont stood very tall and straight by the head of the casket. Clinch wore a vague, undefinable smile in his best clothes, the same smile which had so troubled Jose Quintana. Light was fading fast in the room when the last visitor took silent leave of Clinch and rejoined the groups in the kitchen where the funeral baked meats. Eve still slept. Descending again from his reconnaissance, Trooper Stormont encountered Trooper Lannis below. "'Has anybody picked up Quintana's tracks?' inquired the former. "'Not so far.' An inspector and two state game protectors are out beyond Owl Marsh. The troopers from Five Lakes are on the job, and we have enforcement men along Drowned Valley from the Scour to Herod Place. Does Dara know? Yes, he's in there with Mike. He brought a lot of flowers from Herod Place. The two troopers went into the dance hall where Dara was arranging the flowers from his greenhouses. Stormont said quietly, All right, Jim, but Eve must not know that they came from Herod's. Dara nodded. How is she, Jack? All in. Do you know the story? Yes. Mike went into Drowned Valley early last evening after Quintana. He didn't come back. Before dawn this morning, Eve located Quintana, set a bear trap for him, and caught him with the goods. What goods? demanded Dara sharply. 
Well, she got his pack and found Mike's watch and jewelry in it. What jewelry? The jewels Quintana was after. But that was after she'd arrived at the dump, here leaving Quintana to get free from the trap and beat it. That's how I met her, half-crazed, going to find Quintana again. We'd found Mike in Drowned Valley and were bringing him out when I ran into Eve. I brought her back here and called Ghost Lake. They haven't picked up Quintana's track so far. After a silence, Too bad this snow came so late, remarked Trooper Lannis, but we ought to get Quintana anyway. Dara went over and looked silently at Mike Clinch. I like you, he said under his breath. It wasn't your fault, and it wasn't mine, Mike. I'll try to square things. Don't worry. He came back slowly to where Stormont was standing near the door. Jack, he said, you can't marry Eve on a trooper's pay. Why not quit and take over the Herod estate? You and I can go into business together later, if you like. After a pause, that's rather wonderful of Jim, said Stormont, but you don't know what sort of businessman I'd make. I know what sort of officer you make. I'm taking no chance, and I'll make my peace with Eve, or somebody will do it for me. Is it settled, then? Thanks, said Trooper Stormont, reddening. They clasped hands. Then Stormont went about and lighted the candles in the room. Clinch's face, again revealed, was very faintly amused at something or other. The dead have much to be amused at. As Dara was about to go, Stormont said, We're burying Clinch at eleven tomorrow morning. The Ghost Lake pilot officiates. I'll come if it won't upset Eve, said Dara. She won't notice anybody, I fancy, remarked Stormont. He stood by the veranda and watched Dara take the lake trail through the snow. Finally, the glimmer of his swinging lantern was lost in the woods, and Stormont mounted the stairs once more, stood silently by Eve's open door, realized she was still heavily asleep, seated himself on a chair outside her door to watch and wait. All night long it snowed hard over the Star Pond country, and the late gray light of morning revealed a blinding storm pelting a white-robed world. Toward ten o'clock Stormont on Garv noticed Eve was growing restless. Downstairs the flotsam of the forests had gathered again. Mr. Lycan was there in black gloves. The Reverend Laomi Smatter had arrived in a sleigh from Ghost Lake, both were breakfasting heavily. The pretty, sulky-faced girl fetched a tray and placed Eve's breakfast on it. Trooper Stormont carried it to her room. She was awake when he entered. He set the tray on the table. She put both arms around his neck. Jack, she murmured, her eyes tremulous with tears. Everything has been done, he said. Will you be ready by eleven? I'll come for you. She clung to him in silence for a while. At eleven he knocked on her door. She opened it. She wore her black wool gown and a black fur turban. Some of her power remained, traces of tears and bluish smears under both eyes, but her voice was steady. Could I see Dad a moment alone? Of course. She took his arm. They descended the stairs. There seemed to be many people about, but she did not lift up her eyes until her lover led her into the dance hall, where Clinch lay smiling his mysterious smile. Then Stormont left her alone there and closed the door. In a terrific snowstorm they buried Mike Clinch on the spot he had selected, in order that he might keep a watchful eye upon the trespassing ghost of old man Herod. It blew and stormed and stormed, and the thin, nasal voice of Reverend Smatter was utterly lost in the wind. The slanting lances of snow drove down on the casket, building a white mound over the flowers, blotting the hemlock boughs from sight. There was no time to be lost now. The ground was freezing under a veering and bitter wind out of the west. Mr. Lycan's talented assistants had some difficulty in shaking the mound which snow had began to make into a white and flawless monument. 
The last slap of the spade rang with a metallic jar across the lake, where snow already blotted the newly forming film of ice. The human denizens of the wilderness filtered back into it one by one. Rev Smatter got into his sleigh, plainly concerned about the road. Mr. Lycan betrayed unprofessional haste in loading his wagon and his talented assistants in starting for Ghost Lake. A game protector or two put on snowshoes when they departed. Trooper Lannis let out his horse and Stormonts and got into the saddle. "'I'd better get the beast into Ghost Lake while I can,' he said. "'You'll follow on snowshoes, won't you, Jack?' "'I don't know. I made it a sleigh for Eve. She can't remain here all alone. I'll telephone the inn.' Dara, in blanket outfit, a pair of snowshoes on his back, a rifle in his mittened hand, came trudging up from the lake. He and Stormont watched Lannis riding away with the two horses. "'He'll make it all right, but it's time he started,' said the latter. Dara nodded. "'Some storm. Where's Eve?' "'In a room. What is she going to do, Jack?' "'Marry me as soon as possible. She wants to stay here for a few days, but I can't leave her here alone. I think I'll telephone to Ghost Lake for a sleigh.' Let me talk to her, said Dara in a low voice. Do you think you'd better at such a time? I think it's a good time. It will divert her mind, anyway. I want her to come to Herod Place. She won't, said Stormont grimly. She might. Let me talk to her. Do you realize how she feels towards you, Jim? I do indeed, and I don't blame her. But let me tell you, Eve Strayer is the most honest and fair-minded girl I ever knew, except one. I'll take a chance that she'll listen to me. Sooner or later she will be obliged to hear what I have to tell her, but it will be easier for her, for everybody, if I speak to her now. Let me try, Jack. Stormont hesitated, looked at him, nodded. Dara stood his rifle against the bench in the kitchen porch. They entered the house slowly and met Eve descending the stairs. The girl looked at Dara, astonished, then her pale face flushed with anger. "'What are you doing in this house?' she demanded unsteadily. "'Have you no decency, no shame?' "'Yes,' he said. "'I am ashamed of what my kinsman has done to you and yours. "'That is partly why I am here.' "'You came here as a spy,' she said with hot contempt. "'You lied about your name, and you lied about your purpose. "'You came here to betray Dad. "'If he'd known, he would have killed you.' "'Yes, he would have. "'But do you know why I came here, Eve?' "'I've told you.' And you are wrong. I didn't come here to betray Mike Clinch. I came to save him. Do you suppose I believe a man who has lied to Dad? she cried. I don't ask you to, Eve. I shall let somebody else prove what I say. I don't blame you for your attitude. God knows I don't blame Mike Clinch. He stood up like a man to Henry Herod. All I ask is to undo some of the rotten things that my uncle did to you and yours, and that is partly why I came here. The girl said passionately, "'Neither Dad nor I want anything from Herod Place or from you. "'Do you suppose you can come here after Dad is dead "'and pretend you want to make amends for what your uncle did to us?' "'Eve,' said Dara gravely, "'I've made some amends already. "'You don't know it, but I have. "'You may not believe it, but I liked your father. "'He was a real man. "'Had anybody done to me what Henry Herod did to your father, "'I'd have behaved as your father behaved. "'I'd never have budged from this spot.' I'd have hunted where I chose. I'd have borne an implacable hatred against Henry Herod and Herod Place and every soul in it. The girl's silence looked at him without belief. He said, I am not surprised that you distrust what I say, but the man you are going to marry was a junior officer in my command. I have no closer friend than Jack Stormont. Ask him whether I am to be believed. 
Astounded, the girl turned a flushed, incredulous face to Stormont. He said, You may trust Dara as you trust me. I don't know what he has to say to you, dear, but whatever he says will be the truth. Dara said gravely, Through a misunderstanding, your father came into possession of stolen property, Eve. He did not know it had been stolen. I did. Mike Clinch would not have believed me if I had told him that the case of jewels in his possession had been stolen from a woman. Quintana stole them. By accident, they came into your father's possession. I learned of this. I promised this woman to recover her jewels. I came here for that purpose, Eve, and for two reasons. First, because I learned that Quintana also was coming here to rob your father of these gems. Second, because when I knew your father and knew you, I concluded that it would be an outrage to call on the police. It would mean prison for Clinch, misery and ruin for you, Eve. So I tried to steal the jewels to save you both. He looked at Stormont, who seemed astonished. "'To whom do these jewels belong, Jim?' demanded the trooper. "'To the young Grand Duchess of Estonia. "'Do you remember that I befriended her over there?' "'Yes. "'Do you remember that the Reds were accused of burning her chateau and looting it?' "'Yes, I remember.' "'Well, it was Quintana and his gang of international criminals who did that,' said Dara dryly. "'And to Eve.' By accident, this case of jewels, emblazoned with the coat of arms of the Grand Duchess of Estonia, came into your father's possession. That is the story, Eve. There was a silence. The girl looked at Stormont, flushed painfully, looked at Dara. Then, without a word, she turned, ascended the stairs, and reappeared immediately, carrying the leather case. Thank you, Mr. Dara, she said simply, and laid the case in his hand. But, said Dara, I want you to do a little more, Eve. The owner of these gems is my guest at Herod Place. I want you to give them to her yourself. I... I... I can't go to Herod Place, stammered the girl. Please don't visit the sins of Henry Herod on me, Eve. I... I don't. But... but that place... After a silence, if Eve feels this way, began Stormont awkwardly, I couldn't become associated with you in business, Jim. I'd rather sell Herod Place than lose you, retorted Dar, almost sharply. I want to go into business with you, Jack, if Eve will permit me. She stood looking at Stormont, the heightened color playing in her cheeks as she began to comprehend the comradeship between these two men. Slowly she turned to Dar, offered her hand. I'll go to Herod Place, she said in a low voice. Dar's quick smile brightened the somber gravity of his face. Eve, he said. When I came here this morning from Herod Place, I was afraid you would refuse to listen to me. I was afraid you would not even see me, and so I brought with me somebody to whom I felt certain you would listen. I brought with me a young girl, a poor refugee from Russia, once wealthy, today almost penniless. Her name is Theodorica. Once she was a Grand Duchess of Sonia. But this morning a clergyman from Five Lakes changed her name. To such friends as you and Jack... She is Rika Dara now, and she's having a wonderful time on her new snowshoes. He took Eve by one hand and Stormont by the other and drew them to the kitchen door and kicked it open. Through the swirling snow over on the lake slope at the timber edge, a graceful boyish figure in scarlet and white roll moves swiftly over the drifts with all the naive delight of a child with a brand new toy. As Dara strode out into the open, the distant figure flung up one arm in distant salutation and came racing over the drifts, her brilliant scarf flying. All aglow and a trifle breathless, she met Dara just beyond the veranda, rested one mittened hand on his shoulder while he knelt and unbuckled her snowshoes, stepped lightly from them, and came forward to Eve 
with outstretched hand and a sudden winning gravity in her lovely face. "'We shall be friends, surely,' she said in her quick, winning voice, "'because my husband has told me, and I am so grieved for you, and I need a girlfriend.' Holding both Eve's hands, her mittens dangling from her wrists, she looked into her eyes very steadily. Slowly Eve's eyes filled. More slowly still Rika kissed her on both cheeks, framed her face in both hands, kissed her lightly on the lips. Then, still holding Eve's hand, she turned and looked at Stormont. "'I remember you now,' she said. "'You were with my husband in Riga.' She freed her right hand and held it out to Stormont. He had the grace to kiss it and did it very well for a Yankee. Together they entered the kitchen door and turned into the dining room on the left where there were chairs around the plain pine table. Dara said, "'The new mistress of Herod Place had selected your quarters, Eve.' They adjoined the quarters of her friend, the Countess Orloff Strelwitz. Valentine begged me, said Rika, smiling. She is going to be lonely without me. All hours of day and night we were trotting into one another's rooms. She looked gravely at Eve. You will like Valentine, and she will like you very much. As for me, I already love you. She put one arm around Eve's shoulders. How could you think of remaining here all alone? Why, I should never close my eyes for thinking of you, dear. Eve's head drooped. She said in a stifled voice, I'll go with you. I want to. I'm very tired. We had better go now, said Dara. Your things can be brought over later. If you'll dress for snowshoeing, Jack can pack what clothes you need. Are these snowshoes for him, too? Eve turned tragically to her lover. In Dad's closet, she said, choking, then turned and went up the stairs, still clinging to Rika's hand and drawing her with her. Stormont followed, entered Clinch's quarters, and presently came downstairs again, carrying Clinch's snowshoes and a basket-pack. He seated himself near Dara. After a silence, "'Your wife is beautiful, Jim. Her character seems to be even more beautiful. She is like God's own messenger to Eve, and you are rather wonderful yourself.' "'Nonsense,' said Dara. "'I've given my wife her first American friend, and I've done a shrewd stroke of business in nabbing the best business associate I ever heard of.' You're crazy, but kind. I hope I'll be some good. One thing I'll never get over is what you've done for Eve in this crisis. There'll be no crisis, Jack. Marry and hook up with me in business. That solves everything. Lord, what a life Eve has had. But you'll make it all up to her. All this loneliness and shame and misery of Clinch's dump. Stormont touched his arm in caution. Eve and Rika came down the stairs, the former now in the gray wool snowshoe dress, and carrying her snowshoes, black gown, and toilet articles. Stormont began to stow away her effects in the basket-pack. Dara went over to her and took her hand. "'I'm so glad we are to be friends,' he said. "'It hurt a lot to know you held me in contempt, but I had to go about it that way.' Eve nodded, then suddenly recollecting. "'Oh!' she exclaimed, reddening. "'I forgot the jewel-case. It's under my pillow.' She turned and sped upstairs and reappeared almost instantly, carrying the jewel-case. Breathless, flushed, thankful, and happy in the excitement of restitution, she placed the leather case in Rika's hands. "'My jewels!' cried the girl, astounded. Then, with a little cry of delight, she placed the case upon the table, stripped open the emblazoned cover, and emptied the two trays. All over the table rolled the jewels, flashing, scintillating, ablaze with blinding light and at the same instant the outer door crashed open and Quintana covered them with Dara's rifle. "'Now, by Christ,' he shouted, "'who stirs a finger shall go to God in one jump? You, my Genderame friend, 
You, my friend Smith, turn your damn backs. Hands up high. That's a way. Now, ladies, back away there. Get back or I kill. Sure by Jesus, I kill you like I would some white little mice. With incredible quickness, he stepped forward and swept the jewels into one hand, filled the pockets of his trousers, caught up every stray stone and pocketed them. You, Gendarme, he cried in a menacing voice, you think you shall follow in my track? Yes, I blow your damn head off if you stir before the hour. After that, well, follow and be damned. Even as he spoke, he stepped outside and slammed the door. Dara and Stormont leaped for it. Then the loud detonation of Quintana's rifle was echoed by the splintering rip of bullets tearing through the closed door. Both men halted in the face of the leaden hail. Eve ran to the pantry window and saw Quintana in somebody's stolen lumber sledge lash a big pair of horses into a gallop and go floundering past into the Ghost Lake Road. As he sped by in a whirl of snow, he fired five times at the house. Then, rising and swinging his whip, he flogged the frantic horses into the woods. In the dining room, Stormont, red with rage and shame, and having found his rifle in the corridor outside Eve's bedroom, was trying to open the shutters for a shot, and Dara, empty-handed, searching the house frantically for a weapon. Eve, terribly excited, came from the pantry. "'He's gone!' she cried furiously. "'He's in somebody's lumber sledge with a pair of horses, and he's driving west like the devil!' Stormont ran to the taproom telephone and cranked it, and warned the constable at Five Lakes. "'Good God!' he exclaimed, turning to Dara, scarlet with mortification. "'What a ghastly business! I never dreamed he was within miles of clinches. It's the most shameful thing that has ever happened to me!' "'What could anybody do under that rifle?' said Eve hotly. "'That beast would have murdered the first person who stirred.' Dara, exasperated and dreadfully humiliated, looked miserably at his brand-new wife. Even Stormont also looked at her. She had come forward from the rear of the stairway where Quintana had brutally driven her. Now she stood with one hand on the empty leather jewel-case, looking at everybody out of pretty, bewildered eyes. To Dara, in a perplexed, unsteady voice, "'Is it the same man who robbed us before?' "'Yes, Quintana,' he said wretchedly. Rage began to redden his features. "'Rika,' he said, "'I promise I'd find your jewels. I promise you again that I'll never drop this business till your gems and the flaming jewel are in your possession.' "'But, Jim!' "'I swear it,' he exclaimed violently. "'I'm not such a fool as I seem.' "'Dear,' she protested excitedly, "'you have done what you promised. My gems are in my possession, I believe.' She caught up the emblazoned case, stripped out the first tray, then the second, and flung them aside. Then, searching with the delicate tip of her forefinger in the empty case, she suddenly pressed the hard bottom, thumb, middle finger, and little finger, forming three apexes of an equilateral triangle. There came a clear, tiny sound, like the ringing of the alarm in a repeating watch. Very gently the false bottom of the case detached itself and came away in the palm of her hand. And there, each embedded in its own shaped compartment of chamois, laid the Estonian jewels, the true ones, deep, hidden, always doubly guarded by two sets of perfect imitations lining the two visible trays above. And in the center blazed the aerosite gem, the magnificent flaming jewel, a glory of living, blinding fire. Nobody stirred or spoke. Dara blinked at the crystalline blaze as though stunned. Then the young girl, who had once been Her Serene Highness Theodorica, Grand Duchess of Estonia, looked up at her brand-new husband and laughed. "'Did you really suppose it was these that brought me across the ocean? Did you suppose it was a passion for these that filled my heart? Did you think it was for these that I followed you?' She laughed again, turned to Eve. "'You understand. Tell him if he had been in rags I would have followed him like a gypsy.' 
They say there is gypsy blood in us. God knows. I think perhaps there is a little of it in all real women. Still laughing, she placed her hand lightly upon her heart. In all women, perhaps, a flaming jewel embedded here. Her eyes, tender and mocking, met his. She lifted the jewel case, closed it, and placed it in his hands. Now, she said, you have everything in your possession, and we are safe. We are quite safe now, my jewels and I. Then she went to Eve and rested both hands on her shoulders. Shall we put on our snowshoes and go home? Stormont flung open the bullet-splintered door. Outside the snow, he dropped on both knees to buckle Eve's snowshoes. Dara was performing a like office for his wife, and the state trooper, being unobserved, took Eve's slim hand and kissed them, looking up at her where he was kneeling. Her pale face blushed as it had the day in the woods on Owl Marsh, so long, so long ago, when this man's lips first touched her hands. As their eyes met, both remembered. Then she smiled at her lover, with the shy girl's soul of her gazing out at him, through eyes as blue as the wild-blind gentians that grow among the ferns and mosses of Star Pond. Far away in the northwestern forest, Quintana still lashed his horses through the primeval pines. Triumphant, reckless, resourceful, dangerous, he felt now that nothing could stop him, nothing bar his way to freedom. Out of the wilderness lay his road and his destiny. Out of it he must win his way, by strategy, by cunning, by violence, creep out, lie his way out, shoot his way out. It scarcely mattered. He was going out. He was going back to life once more. Who could forbid him? Who could stop him? Who could deny him now, when in his pocket he held all that was worth living for, the keys to power, to pleasure, the key to everything on earth? In fierce exultation he slapped the glass jewels in his pocket and laughed aloud. The keys to the world, he cried. Let him stop me and take them, who is better man than I. Then his long whip whistled, and he cursed his horses. Then of a sudden, close by, in a snowy road ahead, he saw a state trooper on snowshoes, saw the upflung arm warning him, screamed curses at his horses, flogged them forward to crush this thing to death that dared menace him, this object that suddenly rose up out of nowhere to snatch from him the keys of the world. For a moment, the state trooper looked after the runaway horses. There was no use following. They'd have run till they dropped. Then he lowered the leveled rifle from his shoulder, looked grimly at the limp thing which had tumbled from the sledge into the snowy road and which sprawled there, crimsoning the spotless flakes that fell upon it. The End End of Episode 12 End of The Flaming Jewel By Robert W. Chambers This reading by Wyatt Erickson